Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. This portion of the Hartman Report podcast is brought to you by Phone.com. Phone.com delivers the highest quality service and the most features at the lowest price. They know you'll love their service so much that through this week only, you can receive their service free for two months. Just use the code FALL at Phone.com. That's F-A-L-L at phone.com today. Certain restrictions apply. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Tom Hartman here with you on this day 18 years ago, an obscure fundamentalist with about 5,000 followers attacked the United States. George W. Bush used this attack on the United States to lie us into a war with Iraq and to make Halliburton rich and to give himself political capital to get reelected in 2004. In fact, he signaled that this was coming. And as Valerie Plame pointed out, this was something that was laid out by his brother, Jeb, one of the signatories to the Project for a New American Century, back in 1998 when they sent a letter to then-President Bill Clinton saying, you need to attack Iraq, but we realize that probably there won't be enough public support for an attack on Saddam Hussein in Iraq until there is a Pearl Harbor-style event. It literally says that in their letter to Bill Clinton in their uh, overall document about how this needs to happen. And George Bush then said in 1999 to his biographer, Mickey Herskowitz, this is Cindy Sheehan testifying before the House of Representatives. As a matter Wrong of fact, button. in interviews in 1999 with respected journalists and longtime Bush family friend Mickey Herskowitz, then Governor George Bush stated, one of the keys to being seen as a great leader is to be seen as commander in chief. My father had all this political capital built up when he drove the Iraqis out of Kuwait and he wasted it. If I have a chance to invade, if I had that much capital, I'm not going to waste it. I'm going to get everything passed that I want to get passed, and I'm going to have a successful presidency, end quote. There you go. That's what George Bush told his biographer in 1999, when Mickey Herskowitz had been hired to write George Bush's autobiography, A Charge to Keep. And in the process of exploiting 9-11 for political purposes, George W. Bush elevated Osama bin Laden to near-mythic status. In order for George Bush to be Superman, he had to turn bin Laden into Lex Luthor. And as I said, you know, bin Laden was the, this obscure fundamentalist 
from a multimillionaire family who had basically disowned him. His own country had deported him. Saudi Arabia had deported him to, I believe it was Somalia, where his mother was from. He was nothing. I mean, he was this guy, he was this, you know, rich kid with this fundamentalist rich kid who had this little training camp in Afghanistan. And Mullah Omar, the head of the Taliban at the time, offered to have him arrested and turned over to a third country for trial for the crimes of 9-11. And George Bush said, no, we don't want to do that. I mean, this, this was reported by the Washington Post of all places. So what happened by elevating the status of bin Laden, George W. Bush, by constantly yelling about him and turning this into this giant thing, he basically paved the way for the rise of al-Qaeda and ISIS and this massive war in the Middle East that has cost us over 10,000 American lives, that has cost hundreds of thousands of lives in Iraq, hundreds of thousands of lives in Afghanistan. Millions, at least five million people in Iraq made it turned into refugees. Several million people in Afghanistan turned into refugees. Bush chose to bomb the second poorest country in the world. Burkina Faso is the poorest country in the world. The second poorest country in the world was Afghanistan. They had a GDP, and he started bombing them. They had a, a gross domestic product of under $2 billion a year. We could have literally gone to Afghanistan and said, give us bin Laden, and we'll give you $2 billion, and everybody in Afghanistan is twice as rich as they are right now. They could have started schools, they could have started educating women, they could have modernized Afghanistan. All kinds of great stuff could have come out of this if we had just cooperated with them and helped build something. But no, 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 no. George Bush was like, you know, I've got to be uh, Superman, he's got to be Lex Luthor. And then Cheney directed the CIA and our military to commit numerous war crimes and torture. And we built this prison in Guantanamo in Cuba that's illegal by international law. It's illegal by American law, for that matter. It's still there and all violating international law and violating the fundamental precepts of a democratic republic. And this has devastated our image all over the world. I mean, the pictures of people being tortured at Abu Ghraib, it weakened our moral standing among democratic nations. My take on 9-11 is that never again must we allow, never again can we allow, a president and vice president as corrupt as George W. Bush and Dick Cheney to exploit a national tragedy or a terrorist incident. Keep in mind, this is how Adolf Hitler rose to power. When the German parliament building was burned, he had just been appointed chancellor. He rushes down there, gets on the radio and says, this is a sign from God. And he used that to put himself into power and, and to make himself you know, basically permanent head of Germany. And this is what, you know, not quite on that scale, but this is what George W. Bush tried to do. We can't let it happen again. If we forget this part of the 9-11 story, we put ourselves at risk. There is a congressional race in New Mexico for the 3rd District of New Mexico. Former CIA covert ops officer Valerie Plame, the author of Fair Game, My Life is a Spy, My Betrayal by the White House, is running for Congress. She's got a heck of an ad out. ValeriePlameforCongress.com is the website. Valerie Plame, can you hear us? I sure can. Hi, oh, Tom. Great. Okay, super. Great to have you back. It's been years since you were on the program, and uh, your husband's been on a number of times as well, Joe Wilson. First of all, great driving. <laughs> I encourage everybody to go check out your commercial. It's spectacular. Tell us about your candidacy and why you're running for Congress. 
I'm running for Congress because I want to take this searing life experience of having been outed by the Bush administration as a covert CIA operations officer. Take that, take that judgment, take those decision-making skills and put it to good use for my community in northern New Mexico. Um, I have a record of speaking truth to power, and uh, this is my home. I love it here. I can't imagine being anyplace else. This opportunity came up, and I thought, I can do that, and I can do that well. There are a lot of people in the United States now who are stepping up and running for office, and you know, I think it's just a marvelous, marvelous thing. What are the issues in your mind that if you were to go to Congress uh, mm -hmm. representing New Mexico that you would want to champion? So this district is enormous. It's apparently about the size of Florida. And because of that, it's extremely diverse. It's affluent, it's struggling, it's rural, it's urban. There's a Hispanic community, Anglo, uh, our Pueblo native peoples. But here's the thing, as I go everywhere and listen carefully, like what do you want from your next congressperson and uh, what do you want them to deliver? The same three things keep coming up for this community, which is education, economic opportunity, and concern about the environment. So I know those are three huge things, but that's what I hear over and over again. And what specifically in those areas would you do you think needs to be done? Well, unfortunately, New Mexico ranks 50th in the nation in child well-being. Uh, education is absolutely crucial to that. We have uh, we have failed generations of children. There is some progress being made. $450 million was just allocated in the last legislative session. So that helps, but we're pushing on universal pre-K and then all the way through K through 12, and then trying to strengthen the culture of higher education, whether it's typical university four-year or community colleges. New Mexico has an incredible potential and really good, hardworking, tolerant people, and we can do better than that for sure. That's great. Today is the 18th anniversary of 9-11, which for me, one of the take homes of 9-11 is we should never again allow a president to exploit a national tragedy for political and, and in the case of Dick Cheney, probably financial purposes. Mm -hmm. I'm curious your thoughts. You don't need to respond to what I said, but I'm just curious your thoughts on this anniversary. Well, we kind of know what happens. There was a blueprint, if you will, that was put together by a new yeah, project for New American Century. Project for New American Century. Right. The blueprint was there saying, here's how we really want to project American robust military power to remake the map of the Middle East and so forth. And so that was done, I believe, in 1998. So what it also said is we need the sort of national emergency that we experienced in Pearl Harbor. And lo and behold, 9-11 comes along. And by that time, of course, neocon are in position of real power uh, within the government and without. And all they had to do was take that blueprint off the shelf, dust it off, and get to work. And there was a rush to war, and it was, in my belief, one of the worst foreign policy follies this country has ever made, and we'll be paying for it for generations. We, To say we overreacted would be an understatement. We're talking to Valerie Plame. She's running for the U.S. House of Representatives, the 3rd District of New Mexico, uh, ValeriePlameForCongress.com. She's the former CIA officer, covert ops officer, who was outed by Scooter Libby on behalf of Dick Cheney as, uh, would it be fair to say, as punishment for your husband calling out uh, the Bush administration for their lies with regard to Iraq? I mean, you want to tell that story for people who are not familiar with it? 
Yeah, what happened was in July 2003, uh, Ambassador Joe Wilson uh, wrote an op-ed piece for the New York Times entitled, What I Did Not Find in Africa. And in it, he went after the central rationale that the Bush White House gave to take us into war with Iraq, which was, you don't want to see the smoking gun in the shape of a mushroom cloud and that a nuclear threat is imminent. And he said, you know, I think that the intelligence has been cherry picked and manipulated. And that, by the way, the nuclear threat is way overblown, is certainly not imminent. The Bush administration did not take kindly to that. His was really the first voice to push back because there had been such a juggernaut and a jingoistic fervor in this country. And I believe as political payback, senior administration officials leaked my name, came up with this narrative that somehow Joe and I were scheming to undermine the presidency. And then the rest kind of (laughs) blew up from there, became this huge media scandal that went on for years. And that chapter ultimately ended in March 2007 when Scooter Libby, Dick Cheney's chief of staff, was convicted on four out of five counts. Remarkable. We're hearing that, uh, you know, one of the news reports this morning, in fact, I I think it came from CBS, is that one of the main reasons uh, Donald Trump was so upset with John Bolton and fired him is that Bolton was the guy responsible for leaking the story that on multiple occasions in national security meetings, Donald Trump had wanted to try using a nuke to stop a hurricane. And he was embarrassed by that. That, of course, one example of hundreds. I mean, today in his remarks, he said that he and some of his employees went down to ground zero 9-11. There's no record of that. And previously, he has said that he was in New Jersey and he saw a bunch of Muslims celebrating. It's just all over the place. I'm wondering what kind of damage, as a former covert ops officer and employee of the Central Intelligence Agency, what kind of damage has been done to that agency and to our intelligence service more broadly, both by the ways that intelligence was misused by the Bush-Cheney administration and by this helter-skelter, bouncing off the walls kind of response that, that, or, you know, interaction with the intelligence agencies saying, oh, you know, I trust Vladimir Putin instead of my own intelligence agency from the Trump administration. Where are we at? How, is, how are the intelligence services doing? Tom, considerable damage. Because we have a president who apparently likes to conduct foreign policy by tweet, all our senior officials, not just our intelligence community abroad, are are constantly trying to clean up after the elephant in the circus, right? I mean, it's embarrassing. It seems he's working from ignorance for sure. His misunderstanding of our nuclear capabilities and how they should be used or the guardrails that have been set up that he's busily dismantling along with John Bolton, we're not sorry to see him go, by the way. It's very painful to see. I know my former colleagues within the CIA and throughout the intelligence community are appalled. Look, they serve as Americans. They don't serve as a Democrat. They don't serve as a Republican, except, of course, at political levels. They are really, truly trying to keep America safe. And to have it led by such a a feckless soul who has no ideology, I I, I might even respect him a little bit if he had some, but he doesn't. It's just sort of off the cuff, responding to his own emotional needs of the moment. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. Valerie Plame, she is running for Congress. The website is ValeriePlameForCongress.com. If you haven't seen her TV ad uh, or her internet ad, be sure to check it out. It's really extraordinary. Former CIA covert op uh, officer running for the House of Representatives from New Mexico. Valerie, thanks so much for dropping by today. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, and I wish you the very best. I've got an important message for all my listeners. 
Economists will tell you that rising gold prices are an indicator of a failing currency. Well, gold is already up over 10% just since January and up over 33% in the last three years. What is all this really telling us? Well, the last crash was just a warning. It's only been papered over with trillions of dollars in new debt, and statistically, the next crash is already overdue. This reality has pushed the demand for precious metals to price levels not seen in nearly six years. The time to buy gold is now, before the crash and before the next price increase. The big questions everyone asks are, who can I trust and what types of gold do I buy? Call my friends at ITM Trading at one own gold The proper gold and silver strategy will help secure all your major assets, including your entire wealth portfolio. Call ITM Trading at one own gold Ask them for their free gold protection guide and secure your wealth while you still can. That's 1-888-O-W-N-G-O-L-D. one own gold you're listening to Tom Hartman. Amy McGrath, who is running against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky, says, on September 11, 2001, I was strapped in the backseat of a fully loaded two-seat FA-18 jet just off runway 24 left at the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar in San Diego. Engines running, ready to launch at a moment's notice. This is who's running against Moscow, Mitch. <laughs> Yeah, Marine fighter pilot. That's honest to God. It's just incredible. So uh, anyhow, Donald Trump this morning says uh, he was looking out his window at Trump Tower and saw the building hit. I'm not sure that you can see or you could have seen those buildings from Trump Tower. Uh, You know, Mark uh, Sumner is uh, saying he would have required Superman style X-ray vision. I... (laughs) I don't know. He also said that he and an employee of his drove down there to see if they could help. I'm not believing that. And previously, as I said, Trump has said he was in New Jersey and he was watching Muslims celebrate. Right. He says, I went down to ground zero with men who work for me to try to help any little way that we could. Right. In 2015, he says, I was in New- Jersey City, New Jersey, where thousands and thousands of people were cheering as that building was coming down. That's a verbatim quote from Donald Trump. Remarkable. Anyhow, your thoughts on all this. Tim in Aloha, Oregon. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? It's interesting. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a history buff, and we've talked before about this, but what a lot of people don't understand, especially this being the anniversary, was the actionable intelligence that the Bush administration had weeks prior to that, to 9-11, they did absolutely nothing about it. Yeah, well, actually for a whole year, for, a, for almost a year prior, yeah, yes. Scary stuff. You well, know, in fact, in fact, on this program, Sandy Berger, who was the national security advisor to Bill Clinton and Al Gore, uh, on this program, Sandy Berger told me, and thus everybody who was listening, that he had gone into the office of, oh, who was the national security advisor for George W. Bush? I'm forgetting now. But in any case, he met with the the national security advisor for George W. Bush and said, your number one priority is going to be Osama bin Laden. He's going to hit us in the United States. And he knew from from his own personal experience that Bill Clinton said that to George W. Bush and that Al Gore said that to Dick Cheney. So all three levels were told you need to look out for Osama bin Laden. And because it had been a priority of Bill Clinton, George W. Bush said, eh, ignore that. 
basically. How many uh, memorials is, is uh, Trump going to have today for all the friends he lost in 9-11? Another lie that he told. Yeah. You know? yeah. Remember when he said that? Yes. I mean, this is ridiculous. What it was, it wasn't the Bush-Cheney administration. It was the Cheney-Bush administration. Yeah. Cheney robbed the bank and Bush drove the getaway car, basically. And the money from the bank robbery ended up in Halliburton, which is now in, in Cheney's pocket. Right. Tim, thanks for the call. Maverick in Edmonds, Washington. Hey, Maverick, what's up? Hi, Tom. Uh, I remember 9-11. I was uh, working at a music station in uh, Seattle and just finished a midnight to six shift. And I got home and saw the TV was on and what the events were unfolding. I don't know why, but I immediately went back to the station and uh, we switched format to an all talk and took calls uh, from people. And what I remember most about the aftermath of that horrible event was this tremendous sense of unity that swept the entire country. And I've always felt that that kind of shows us what we could do if we all got together on something. Right. And if a politician doesn't decide to cravenly exploit that for their own political and financial gain, which is what happened with Bush and Cheney. I'm with you. I'm with you, Maverick. Thank you very much for the call. What a great story. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archive. It was Condoleezza Rice was the person that Sandy Berger met with, and he said, look out, Bin Laden's coming to get you, and she apparently blew it off, too. Let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com. And Loving What You Do, a new book by Ellen Ratner. On the line with us is Bob Nay, the author of Sideswiped, former congressman from Ohio. Congressman, welcome back. Well, thank you, Tom. We've been talking about 9-11, Bob. For me, the biggest lesson of 9-11 was uh, beware of presidents and vice presidents who try to exploit national tragedies for political purposes and to turn their Halliburton company into a multi-billion dollar enterprise when it's about to go bankrupt. I'm wondering what the lesson of 9-11 is for you. Well, uh, for, for us, I think it was the fact that we needed to have a balance. And, and I want to give a lot of credit here. Steny Hoyer, who is the number two Democratic official in America, you know, right behind Speaker Pelosi, uh, Steny Hoyer worked with us, with the Committee of House Administration, in a completely bipartisan way, and in not one sense of the step along the path, Tom, did he ever politicize anything, and he worked to secure the security of the Capitol, which is important nationwide, and it's important for our family of 10,000-some people alone on the House side that work there. So, you know, the lesson that I think we learned was that we had to have a balance because uh, Steny Hoyer, uh, like myself and others, you know, there was there was movements at that time to shut down the Capitol, stop the tours, you know, put barrier around it, put a fence around it, you know, for six blocks, all these types of things. It was an attempt to actually close the place off from people, legitimizing it by saying we'd have to do it in the interest of national security. So for me, I, I learned a balance lesson out of that, and Steny Hoyer provided fantastic support on that. There is a balance there. And the reason I mention that is because it was an emergency where people wanted to restrict reporters from the Capitol. They wanted to restrict people from the Capitol, Uh, like the Patriot Act, which was used uh, as an emergency provision, you know, to do other things that were nefarious. You know, we all know that now. And also the biggest one of all, it was used to invade a country that there weren't 19 Iraqis on the airplanes. There were 19 Saudis on the airplanes. We attacked Iraq. Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> big mistake. For money. Yeah. For the big, for the military complex. Well, and also for because, equipment. as Dick Cheney pointed out, uh, oil. Iraq is the second largest source of oil in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Incredible. No question. So, Bob, what's what's in the news today? And again, we remember all the people, unfortunately, that lost their lives there. And it's such a sad note. But I think there's a positive note for the world today, Tom. As you know, on your show, around June 10th or 11th, I predicted that John Bolton would not last the end of the summer. And I put it on Facebook, and I told all of our stations that we call into. Wow, and, and you, I were, said you were that, like one day off. Oh, right. Well, I had a 10-day leave, <laughs> you know, <laughs> summertime. But, um, but it's a happy day, I think, for the world, honestly. And, you know, I'm seeing some of the media who, who do not like Trump, and I understand that, but they're trying to make it, you know, John Bolton was the hero that stood up. No, John Bolton was part of the Cheney system. As long as John Bolton was in the White House, Dick Cheney was in the White House, Halliburton was in the White House. Bolton was the guy, as you know his history, Tom, I don't have to tell you, you know the history of Bolton, how he was involved with the fake information on Iraq, how he almost got us into a war with Iran. And this is the one thing, you know, a clock, uh, what, what do they say? A clock makes the right call yeah, twice a broken day. Even, clock, even a broken, broken clock is right? right twice a day. All right. Right. Okay. Well, President Trump was right on this one yeah. uh, because Bolton was a danger. And I, I don't care how he got fired or how he got dismissed. The fact is he did right. get dismissed. And I think this is a great positive step. Yeah, really and, do. And, and they're also, I mean, it's kind of weird. They're saying that Bolton objected to the Taliban coming I get that, you know, I, I, but the, the, I think the less well-publicized story, and it's from one of the major TV networks, one of the three big networks, I don't recall if it's CBS or ABC, was that uh, Bolton was the guy who leaked the story that in a national security meeting, Trump wanted to bomb a hurricane with a nuke. And that Trump was very was upset with him about we that. We won't know, Tom, for years all the things Bolton did. We have to remember something. John Bolton was the national security advisor, as before him, Condoleezza Rice, et cetera, you know, people in key positions, right? right. Sandy Berger. And, and what ends up happening, these people in these positions have access to the NSA, the National Security Agency, the CIA. They have access to top-level rogue people if they want in those organizations. Also, I think history will show that John Bolton was the one who fed information to England in order to get them to take the Iranian tanker, telling them it was headed for somewhere else. I, I mean, I think years from now we will find out what John Bolton was doing. We, we just don't know the full adventures that he tried to carry out in order to put us into war. There was yeah. no question he wanted Trump to be the wartime president. Amazing. Amazing. So what he else did. is up, Bob? Well, the decision on asylum is continuing on because there was the this Ninth for Circuit. Bahamians? Uh, you mean? Yeah, Ninth Circuit, where they have to do third-party asylum requests. Okay. You know, third-country okay. asylum requests. Okay. And, of course, this is tying into a whole barrage of things that we're not even keeping up with hardly in the media because there's so many other issues out there. Oh, you're talking you about Trump's policy that people from Guatemala, for example, have to apply in Mexico rather than here. Correct. Mexico being right. a third country. And yeah. so now... Now, what this does, this decision yesterday, will mean that this will take effect. People coming into Texas and uh, New Mexico, it's not good for people trying to seek asylum. Remarkable. Remarkable. Bob Nay, Talk Media News. Thank you, Bob. Thank you. Great, Thank you. great talking with you today. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. I'm reading from Chapter 4, titled An Army of One. Two years after the incident at Cape May, Bo's failure still ate at him. He never told his parents what had happened. 
The day they shipped me out, a thought occurred to me, and it stayed in my mind whenever I thought about the Coast Guard, he told General Dahl, and that was that I wanted to fix that. Those who knew him knew Bo was struggling with something. He would never say what it was, but the tension was plain. He spent more and more time in his room at Anna's. There was no bed, no couch, no TV, but on his days off from work, he stayed there, sometimes for days at a time. Fontaine and her other new roommate heard him yelling at himself. I can't believe you did that. That was so stupid. Some of his friends worried, but Bo never complained, and around men in particular, he carried himself with stoic severity. Women saw a more concerning aspect. In the Harrison's kitchen, one of Kim's friends grabbed his hand, flipped his forearm over to reveal the neat rows of cuts. You have such nice arms, she said. What the heck are you doing to yourself? I'm getting ready, he told her. What are you getting ready for? Pain. Bo, what on earth are you talking about? I'm just getting ready. Enough time had passed where I got uncomfortable again with not doing something that was making a difference, he told Dahl years later. His parents put him in touch with their pastor from Boise, Phil Proctor, who was ministering with seminary students in northeastern Uganda. Bo told his parents it sounded interesting. He could go to East Africa and teach villagers self-defense techniques. But the timing didn't work out. All the seminary spots were taken. That spring, Bo's seeking came full circle. He remembered meeting another Coast Guard washout who told him that if he wanted to, he could re-enlist. The Army was stressed for new, warm bodies. His family knew he'd been thinking about it. Whatever you do, don't join the Army, his sister and Albrecht told him. It was a bit of the old Army-Navy rivalry coming through, but Skye also believed that the Navy took care of its own in a way that the Army never had. His mother agreed, but didn't think Bo would actually enlist. Days later, when she saw him on the highway driving back from Twin Falls in his motorcycle, she knew that he had. At the Army recruiting station, Bo was a young man in a hurry. He told the recruiter that he wanted to become a scout, a soldier who takes risky missions to track down enemy positions. The recruiter told him there were no more slots available for scouts, but that he had three openings in the infantry, which would fill up fast if Bergdahl didn't act quick. He offered him a $5,000 signing bonus to sweeten the deal. In the spring of 2008, the Army had lowered its recruiting standards to levels not seen since the end of the draft. Five years earlier, at the start of the Iraq War, 94% of new recruits had high school diplomas. By 2005, that number had dropped to 71%. New soldiers with what the Army defined as Category 4 intelligence, those who scored in the 30th percentile or below, were accepted. As Iraq burned, their numbers rose, rising from just six one-hundredths of a percent of new recruits and up to 4%. Convicted felons could secure a waiver from a sympathetic officer, and they were accepted too. Physical fitness standards dropped. Recruiters fudged paperwork and coached problem cases like Bergdahl through background checks. His Coast Guard diagnosis was no longer disqualifying. He simply signed a form prepared by his recruiter stating that he had overcome his earlier issues. Bergdahl's waiver was approved in late May 2008, and he was issued orders to Fort Benning, Georgia, for Infantry One Station Unit training, where civilians were turned into infantrymen. His parents didn't take the news as badly as Bo had feared. Janney was relieved that he would no longer be traveling the world alone. Bob thought the structured life would do him good. Reading the news at the time, he also believed that the Taliban was on the run and the risk of serious combat was low. He's barely going to get in on the war in Afghanistan, Bob recalled thinking at the time. It's almost over. Kim and her brother took it much worse. Mark Ferris's heart sank at the news. The last they had talked, Bo was planning a two-week wilderness trip in the Yellowstone River in a sea kayak. It was a wild idea and would be a rough trip, but Ferris thought it could work. The Army would not work. 
If there was a human being unfit for the Army who should never have joined the Army, it was Bo, said Ferris. He was naive, idealistic, good-spirited, a very gentle person, and a gentle soul. Anna Fontaine was equally concerned. Why was this a better idea than the Coast Guard? You tried this before. It didn't work. Why are you putting yourself through this again? Bo told her he was older now and had matured. I was naive then, he said. I now know what to expect. Anna had grown up in the South near Army bases and told him he wouldn't like the rough culture. It didn't matter. He was dead set on it, she said. He was gung-ho. Her parting words to him were, keep your head down, don't be a hero. During two weeks of in-processing as an infantry trainee at the Army's 30th Adjutant General Reception Battalion, Bergdahl learned that the Army didn't care for his feelings, his opinions, or his time. He stood in one line after another for physical exams, for drawing equipment, and for having his head shaved. His free time was spent in an open bay starship barracks filled with bunk beds and his fellow recruits. 2nd Battalion, 58th Infantry, House of Pain, was one of six training battalions on Sand Hill, a section of Fort Benning Reserve for basic training. Each battalion was led by a lieutenant colonel. Within the battalions were six companies, each led by a captain and a first sergeant. There were four platoons in each company led by drill sergeants. And the book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. Picture your face in the mirror. You see all those wrinkles around your eyes, and crow's feet and large under eye bags? Now imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery. Just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderm, a clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet, and under eye bags in a minute. It's the edge you've been looking for. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I tried it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. I look like me, just younger. Simply put, I'm blown away by the results. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to be yourself at work or out with friends. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Go to tryplexiderm.com and use my code TOM, T-H-O-M, for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10, $10 off. This offer is also available by calling one 800 685-1292 and mentioning the code TOM, T-H-O-M. Plexiderm is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit TryPlexiderm.com today and use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, at checkout. That's TryPlexiderm.com. Congressman Mark Pocan is on the line with us. He is the co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He represents the 2nd District of Wisconsin in the U.S. House of Representatives. His website is pocan.house.gov. P-O-C-A-N. You can tweet him at Rep. Mark Pocan. Congressman, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. Glad to be here. So I guess, you know, politically speaking, we had an election in North Carolina, the 9th District, and Dan Bishop, the Republican, won it, but by a squeaker. And this was also the race where the Republican, the previous Republican candidate had hired a guy to go around and, and take people's absentee ballots and throw them away or mark them up or whatever if they voted for a Democrat. So anyhow, what are your thoughts on this and, and what does this tell you about what might be happening in 2020? Yeah, so, you know, this is a district where I think the president won by 12 points. The fact that this was a super narrow race, again, seeing a double-digit shift, shouldn't be of great surprise that we didn't win the district, our candidate ran against an assault ban, weapons assault ban against the Green New Deal, against a few other things that maybe most of us in the Democratic Party support. But I think it is something that we have to be careful that others don't try to say, oh, they called him a socialist and that's why we lost. 
because I think the fact that he didn't support an assault ban or the Medicare for All or some of these other issues also could be reasons why maybe we didn't get more of our votes out. And I think something that will be used by people trying to make a lot of prognostications about next year. But at the end of the day, I think the prognostication that we should all be able to agree on is it shifted by double digits because Donald Trump isn't doing well still. So McCready, the Democrat who was running, was not a progressive. He was what you might call a corporate Democrat or the media likes to call them centrists. I yeah, I think I he was running more as that. a... But I think, you know, we've seen a little bit of chatter already, people saying he lost because he was called a socialist in certain places, where uh, I would also point out I've seen other places where they mentioned he didn't support some of the things that the Democratic base really supports. And at the end of the day, I mean, it still was a, a huge uphill climb, a, a minus 12 district there for, for what Trump won. But it still moved 10 points, and uh, that's significant. And that's what we saw last fall with congressional elections. I think I saw a stat somewhere between 30 and 40 Republican districts have a smaller Trump performance than this district. So it still, I think, bodes well for going to next year. But I want to make sure we don't allow the centrist in the Democratic Party to try to spin this as the socialism somehow worked when I would argue maybe some of the issues that were talked about weren't bringing out some of the voters we needed to bring out. Yeah, that's a very interesting perspective that is completely absent from the analysis that I've seen on, yeah. on both of the two cable news networks. Okay, well, let's, shall we pick up phone calls here? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Russell in Oaklawn, Illinois. Hey, Russell, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Ah, yeah, thank you for taking my call, Tom. Mr. Pocan, I'm hearing that you guys, the Democrats, you guys got to replenish the money that Donald Trump took from the military. He wants you to bring up the allocation, more money for it. Are you guys, is that a dead issue? Because why? He's just going to take it if you replenish the money. He'll probably steal it anyway. What do you guys think about that? We're not backfilling the money. And when the president said that originally, he knew he was lying. But I'm sure that doesn't shock anyone. James in Northbrook, Illinois. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Jeff in Fort Dodge, Iowa. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes. Hi, Congressman. Uh, I'm hearing that Joni Ernst and my senators, Chuck Grassley, are just outraged at the Trump administration and the his EPA about these 31 exemptions to these refineries for blending fuel. Weren't those the people that put the EPA director in that position? Wasn't Scott Pruitt confirmed by both Grassley and Ernst. And we've got farmers that are out here in Iowa that just don't understand what's happening to them. Could you explain this, please? Yeah, Jeff, you're exactly right. I think, you know, the moral of the story is if you keep a rattlesnake as a pet, you're eventually going to get bit. And in this case, they all sold their souls in backing Donald Trump and any crazy idea he puts forward because they don't want the base mad at them. But when that crazy idea devastates the farm economy in Iowa and Wisconsin and a lot of other corn-growing states because of the president's actions through the EPA, then, you know, they're upset, but they're the ones who are the enablers that caused this to happen. So I think, you know, you need to take that back to folks in Iowa that, you know, it's, it's uh, Ernst and Grassley that have really uh, created this problem. They won't stand up to the president. They won't stand up to him on tariffs that are also hurting your farmers and my farmers. And uh, I think, you know, be very aggressive with that message, because in the last election, supposedly 70 percent of farmers voted for Donald Trump, yet they're really being hurt on so many fronts, especially corn growers. We need to make sure we're relaying that. Omar in Herndon, Virginia, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good day to you, Tom. Good day to you, Mr. Pocan. Just FYI, I have recommended to Elizabeth Warren campaign 
when she got elected that Tom, you're going to be either labor secretary or the environment secretary. And Mr. <laughs> Mr. No, Polkan in- is going to no be interest, the- Omar, but Mr. what's your question for Congressman Pocan? Mr. Pocan is going to be the health secretary. My question is that how secure is that election in 2020 in spite of what happened in 2016? Thank you. Yeah, we have a lot of concerns. So not only did we pass H.R. 1, which is the most comprehensive election campaign finance and ethics law bill ever passed in Congress, but we also sent a bill that just very strategically with the scalpel addressed concerns we have about Russia or anyone else interfering in our elections, and Mitch McConnell sitting on him, which is why I think, you know, he has earned the title Moscow Mitch. If he thinks it's more important to protect Russia via the president, protect the president via what Russia did, then he has to live up to it. And if he's not going to take up a simple measure that would protect our elections, then he has to pay the price. And actually, everyone in the Senate who doesn't support that should have to pay that price. Jared in Pennsylvania, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hello, Tom, and hello, Congressman Pocan. I'm calling about the issue of the war in Afghanistan and how it is now on its 18th year in October. Why is it that Congress is not looking at the real funders of the Taliban and why they exist, namely Saudi Arabia, which has on record been documented funding the Taliban, and the U.S. funds Saudi Arabia So by proxy, we are funding the Taliban through Saudi Arabia. And another thing is the um, documents about 9-11, of the unclassified documents about the Saudi involvement in 9-11. And I'd like to take this comment off the air. Yeah, I I think I'm going to answer a little more generally, Jared, which is just this morning we did have a a meeting, a a caucus meeting, a speakers meeting, and we had a presentation about what's going on with Afghanistan and Taliban. And and I think the part that really came out to me, there's been some ongoing conversations, obviously, to try to resolve what's going on there. And Donald Trump probably blew it up with what he did last week once again by him trying to be too clever by half to try to have some kind of a deal for 9-11. The way he handled it probably set us back in trying to get things done, and that's part of the problem with Donald Trump. Sure, Bolton was never good for the country in the position he was in, but you know Donald Trump goes through advisors like crazy because he doesn't take advice, and he also doesn't know what he's doing because he doesn't seem to read or intellectually have a capacity to look at these issues. So for him trying to get ratings by cutting a deal the week of 9-11, he may have set us back quite a bit in trying to get something done. Jack in North Carolina, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hi, Tom. I've listened to you a long time. I'm an FDR liberal that lives in North Carolina. I'm also a veteran. I'm the son of World War II veterans. One thing you got to realize about McCready, which I was really in favor of, unfortunately I'm not in that district. I would have worked a hell of a lot more for him, but he was a veteran, although he is a business person. He was, uh, his main business was putting in solar farms. So I, he's the kind of candidate that, uh, honestly, I wish the rest of North Carolina could be like Chapel Hill and Asheville, where I've lived, which are liberal. But there's parts of the states that are so inured to this Jesse Helms attitude that, that, that strived here literally since the Civil War in some of the 
agrarian areas of the state. So running someone that is a moderate Democrat may work there. Uh, at the same time, though, how can we as Democrats work to get the FDR values of progression of progressive politics into places like this? I'd really like to know what you and uh, 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 Mr. Pocan uh, would think about that. Thank you, Jack. Yeah, Jack, so, I mean, I, I think a big part of it is you can be a moderate running in a district, but you should at least understand some progressive populist issues around economics because that's where the public's at. And, you know, I, I think when the people are trying to spin right now this socialist rhetoric, we know it's never worked in history, right? They did it with they did Medicare, Social Security. It's never worked. So we shouldn't start buying something gullibly by people who want us to change what the party's about. We know where the leading presidential candidates are right now. I mean, the progressive vote combined is stronger than not within the Democratic Party. But in a district like this, maybe it's not a good idea to take a anti-universal health care stance or an anti-climate change stance. And especially if someone's got a background in that solar area, you probably have a more of an ability to be a strong voice on that. And I think you know, we just have to look at all of that, but especially those pocketbook issues where people talk about at their kitchen table, uh, they're worried about paying for their rent or mortgage, having insurance for their family. Can they take a family vacation? We need to talk about those core issues, those core populist progressive issues, because that is how you get more voters to be backing us. And I just think, again, you can be a moderate on, on many issues, but don't forget those core issues that people have progressive populist beliefs in. If we forget that, then we make a mistake. So just to clarify, McCready did not support the Green New Deal, did not support Medicare for All, did not support student loan debt relief. Is that correct? Not sure about the student debt relief. I know the other one was salt ban, which I could see maybe in, a, in some Weapons areas ban. of North yeah. Carolina. Yeah. Right. He did not um, support but, that. Yeah, I do think, though, that, you know, again, having a message where you're not on the right side of these issues. I mean, climate change is, is we have a, a vast majority of people who believe that issue with us, we need to then work and talk about that issue. And I think right now, again, the spin around socialists being the reason is a spin that certain people want to put out there for a reason. Yeah, I got it. Michael in Miami, Florida, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yes, thank you, gentlemen, for taking the time to talk with me. I'd just like to ask Mr. Pocan if he'd like to give a shout out to Ilhan Omar, who today said some people did something. What do you have to say for yourself? Yeah, I don't think she said that today, uh, for one. And two, I get your point. You've done a good job. You can uh, get your Fox points for the day. And uh, good luck. <laughs> okay. Let's see here. Sam in Estes Park, Colorado. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Well, it's kind of something for both of you to think about as far as the Democratic Party and the Democratic debates and what we should be talking about. And I know it seems like a minor thing, but the whole Democrat Party slur that gets thrown around, how come it seems like the Democrats never fight back against that? Yeah, when people say Democrat Party on this show, I say there is no such thing as the Democrat Party. It's the Democratic Party. It was Joe McCarthy in the 1950s who launched a campaign to get Republicans to refer to it as, as the Democrat Party. And he said, and always put the emphasis on the rat. Congressman? <laughs> Yeah. You know, uh, there's a lot of things they do and we need to respond to better. I think the one that I'm most concerned about right now is this. I think there are some 
in the corporate world here in D.C. that want to play up the socialist thing, even though we know throughout history it has been used poorly against Democrats, whether it be during Medicare or Social Security. Multiple times in history they've said, oh, this is a socialist concept and trying to use it as a boogeyman, and it's never worked. The problem is they're doing that again because Republicans are using that term, the president uses that term, and I think if we start to actually buy the rhetoric we could be taking some wrong turns looking at 2020. So the one I'm really watching the most, Sam, and I'm most concerned about is people, how they respond to all the rhetoric around socialists. Instead, we just need to call the Republicans out for what they do or more accurately don't do. Like on health care, a good example. I think in that last debate, people were arguing more about dotting I's and crossing T's than saying for the last two and a half years, Republicans have tried to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, take away people's protections with pre-existing conditions. And when you really talk about that, people understand what the alternative is. And too often we let them uh, put the word out and we respond rather than being aggressive against their actual actions. So that's what I'm most uh, worried about, Sam, personally, when it comes to semantics. Well, if you're thinking about watching the debates tomorrow and, you know, staying up late and all that kind of stuff and a little CBD oil might help get to sleep, I don't know. It's, uh, you know, it does for me anyway. Anyhow, New Leaf Natural CBD oil is great. CBD oil is non-intoxicating, which makes it ideal for people seeking the health benefits of cannabinoids without the mind-altering effects of medical marijuana. It's non-toxic. CBD is non-toxic, has potent pain-relieving and anti-inflammatory properties. And the brand I trust the most is New Leaf Naturals. NU Leaf Naturals is the highest quality CBD oil on the market, 100% organic, highly concentrated, contains no additional additives, grown in the United States, and the only ingredient is hemp, so the product remains in its most pure and simple form. Go to newleafnaturals.com, that's newleafnaturals.com, and save 30% off and get free shipping in the U.S. when you use the code TOM, spelled T-H-O-M. Go to newleafnaturals.com. For premium cannabinoid wellness, there's only one place, newleafnaturals.com. Sadru in Bolingbrook, Illinois. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good afternoon or good morning. But my question is, or rather my frustration is, is that Nancy Pelosi does not want to impeach this guy in the White House. When is it going to be the right time? When he's blown up the world and then we're going to sit down? Because we won't be around. I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yes, yeah, Sadru, I think it's probably not accurate characterization to say she doesn't want to impeach him. I think she has said she thinks he's done impeachable crimes. I think what she's been very clear on over and over is that in order for us to prove this, that you can actually get the support you need in the House and the Senate, we need to get the witnesses forward. And right now the president's blocking witnesses, whether it be related to the Mueller report, which I think has been the 800-pound gorilla, but now more and more you know, issues around the emoluments clause and his facilities in Ireland and in Scotland and, and, and his hotel in D.C. and around his taxes and some other issues. So I think what they're doing today in judiciary was actually doing the formal vote about starting the impeachment, not starting, but the, the impeachment investigation, supporting that. We've already started that uh, before we left on break. I think now that seems to be the term that is used instead of inquiry is investigation. It seems to be the same term, but we're using investigation now. Um, but I, I don't believe that Nancy has said she doesn't want him impeached. In fact, I think just the opposite. She's saying if you're going to impeach him, you have to have support beyond just the Democrats when you get to the Senate. And that means we need to get these witnesses to come. And right now, Donald Trump's been blocking them. So we have to use the legal system to get them so that we can actually take that vote and be successful. George in Chicago, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Good morning, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Congressman, sure. I'd like you to connect up a few bits 
I think that together means something significant. There's this mass exit of Republicans from the House who don't want to face the voters again. And one of them is your colleague, Mr. Sensenbrenner, who I think will have like 40 years in when he leaves in January. And the fact that there was a story a couple days ago that farm bankruptcies are at an all-time high in Wisconsin, coupled with Mm -hmm. Republicans not having had regular town halls with their voters, is this indicative of possibly a, a, a huge blue wave in the next election where the voters are just going to have so many grievances against Republicans that they'll vote Democratic this time? Boy, George, let me answer it a couple ways. I do think, especially when it comes to the farm economy, whether it be the tariff issue, whether it be the EPA's actions about reformulated fuels using ethanol, which is corn, which is grown in Wisconsin and throughout the upper Midwest. There's a lot of people who I think voted for Trump who aren't real happy right now, and I think that's going to have an impact. What I'm seeing really in a lot of the people running, some of them are in swing districts, and they just don't want to go through this again. Some of them are people that are your more traditional Republicans in the the more traditional way the party was, and they're not happy in their party, but they're also not going to stand up. So they're just choosing to leave, and we're watching that be a part of the the numbers, too. And we beat a lot of the moderates in the last election when we took the majority. So what you're seeing is a Republican Party that doesn't look like your traditional conservative political party. Instead, it looks a bit more like a cult of Donald Trump, and they'll do whatever he wants and says. And those who don't like that, they find a quiet way to leave rather than speaking out. And I think that's what I've noticed from the bigger trend of people leaving right now. Scott in Pontiac, Michigan, you're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Hey, good afternoon, Tom. I'm actually in Oxford, Michigan, and uh, thank you for taking my call. Congressman Polkran, thank you for allowing me to talk to you. It's an honor. One of the things that I've been seeing lately on TV is a lot of ads from uh, local unionized groups like the fire department claiming that single payer is bad, right? Medicare for all is going to be bad. Well, being that labor, that's their kind of their linchpin in negotiations. Is there any anything going on in the House to help strengthen labor unions, but also give them more of a platform in things like a 32-hour work week or better wages and wage protections. Other things than health care that they can offer as benefits to their employees, in other words. Exactly. Yeah. Congressman? Yeah. Great question, Scott. And there's a couple major initiatives. There's a, a bill that I do expect to pass this fall that would help unions in many ways around collective bargaining rights and strengthening our ability to have labor law work for workers. And that will pass the House of Representatives. There's also another bill that Bernie Sanders and I have introduced that goes even a little farther that would go towards car check and a few other things that we think is important. So there certainly are provisions around that. I think my conversation I would have with any labor leader, and I'm a member of a union for three decades, and I work very closely with labor here, that's where my passions are, is that we can't, just because of the attacks on labor, one of the things that you know they have fought for well for people have been better wages and benefits. If everyone has health care, that allows you then to fight for other better benefits, whether it be retirement or pay, and we shouldn't lose focus on that. Everyone will have the boat lifted up if we have a universal health care system, a single-payer system, and they still have a very strong role in fighting for people's wages and working conditions against employers who all too often aren't living up to what they should. So unions can be strong, and everyone can have health care that is not at all incompatible, and we need to pass more protections for unions to be able to give workers a voice in their workplace, I think we can do both. 
William in Chicago. You're on the air with Congressman Pocan. Yeah. Hi, Congressman. I understand you're the head of one of the largest caucuses in Congress. I would just wanted to know how you determine membership of the caucus or enforce discipline in it. And if your focus is primarily on a legislative agenda or if you also did uh, political, you know, organizing contributions to individual progressive candidates in primaries or general elections. Sure. I can try to answer both. Generally, members uh, choose to join the Progressive Caucus. We do give them a list of issues that are issues we've endorsed and ask that they're behind these issues and often try to make sure they sign on to some major pieces of legislation. We just had someone recently who joined and uh, agreed to those principles, but it is by self-selection. We don't have a recruitment process or something like that per se. And we do also have a, a political arm. We have a PAC, and we also have a nonprofit arm, a 501c3 and c4 arm, the Congressional Progressive Caucus center that some of us are on the board of. It is a separate entity, but it does have affiliation with the Progressive Caucus. Steve in uh, New Boston, Michigan. Yes, I'm just asking, what is going on with the congressional subpoenas that have been sent to various members of the Trump administration and are coming back just being ignored because the president says, well, you don't have to answer that subpoena. As a private citizen, if I get a subpoena, what do I do? Just ignore it, throw it away? What's good for the goose is good for the gander. Let me take the answer after I hang up the call Thank so I you, can Steve. hear. Yeah, Steve, so a lot of it is, is right now, unfortunately, through the legal process, which is not a fast process, which is why judiciary is taking up the impeachment investigation to give us more leverage to get witnesses to come. Great. And uh, in our final 15 seconds, what should we be looking yeah. at this week, Congressman? I'll tell you, for the next few months, people have to be vigilant. We have a big agenda from the NAFTA 2.0 trade agreement, prescription drug pricing. There's a mass surveillance reform by the end of the year. The National Defense Authorization is going to come through a conference committee, gun violence prevention, Social Security, uh, our continuing resolution. A lot of issues coming up. We need people to be very active in reaching out to members of Congress. Wow, that's great. By the way, have you seen Adam Schiff's piece in the Washington Post about Chinese drugs? No, I haven't. It's really worth checking out. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that next week. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Congressman Mark Pocan, thank you so much for being with us, sir. Thank you. Appreciate it as always. Sean informs me that Donald Trump made the claim that his building was now the tallest building in Manhattan the afternoon of 9-11 on WOR? WWOR TV. Oh, interesting. So uh, he was not down at Twin Towers trying to do something. Margo in East Madison, Wisconsin. Hey, Margo, what's up? I can't remember, but were there political shenanigans going on that precipitated people from the Middle East, whoever they were, probably Saudis, but... What precipitated the attack? What had we done, or was there something that the public didn't know that caused them to fly planes into the Twin Towers? Sure. I'd be glad to answer that question, Margo. We we do know what happened. Uh, it's a matter of public record. Osama bin Laden wrote about it. Uh, part of it was published in the New York Times back in 1999. Uh, what bin Laden said was that there were two things that he said he was going to attack America if two things weren't fixed. The first was we had built in Saudi Arabia 
uh, an Air Force base. It was called the Prince bin Salman Air Force Base, as I recall. And uh, it was to stage our uh, fighter jets that were going into Iraq when we invaded during the first Gulf War. This was Poppy Bush. This was, you know, after the Reagan administration, Bush Sr. had his little short war with Iraq because they had invaded Kuwait. And he went to the Saudis and oh, said, okay. you know, we, we need to have an Air Force Base in Saudi Arabia to be able to attack Iraq. And the Saudis said, okay, fine. And so they built this Air Force Base. And, and then after the war in Iraq, back in, you know, in the 80s or late 80s, early 90s, I forget what year it was, maybe 91, I think. Um, after that happened, uh, we kept the Air Force Base there. And Osama bin Laden was outraged. He was a, a, a fundamentalist Muslim. He was, you know, a, a real purist. And he was outraged that the holy uh, site of Saudi Arabia, that, that nation considers itself holy in Islam. I mean, they've got Mecca and Medina, the two holiest cities in all of Islam. And, but they consider the entire country to be sacred soil. And so there were American soldiers on that sacred soil on the, in that Air Force base who were drinking alcohol, watching pornography, and women, American women soldiers, were driving and showing their elbows. And these were all things that Osama bin Laden said were absolutely intolerable. And so number one, that Air Force base had to be shut down. That was his demand in 1998, 1999. And the second demand was that he said that we were, at that time we were paying, as I recall, 35 or $40 a barrel for oil from Saudi Arabia. And he said that he thought Saudi oil should be priced at $100 a barrel or higher, that by paying these lower prices, we were robbing his homeland and he wanted that fixed as well. Now, what happened after George Bush came to power is George Bush shut down that Air Force Base after bin Laden attacked us because he knew what was going on. He knew why they were you know, seriously angry with us. And so he shut down the Air Force Base. And of course, the price of oil also went up after 9-11 dramatically. So bin Laden got what he wanted. But those were the reasons why bin Laden, according to bin Laden, those were the reasons why he struck America. So uh, thank you for the call, Margo. Great to hear from you. George in Bermuda Dunes, California. Hey, George, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. Thanks again for being there. Uh, you know, something just hit me, and I was going to Google it, but I thought I'd call the professor. As I recall, the day of 9-1-1 in Tehran, Iran, over a million people were walking and marching in the streets, including their fire departments, waving American flags, in support of America. That's correct. Now, that was downtown Tehran, Iran. It was a candlelight vigil. It was, uh, yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely correct. Thank you so much for your help. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the call, George. Howard in Philadelphia. Yeah, so uh, Trump did brag about his building being the tallest. It was on 9-11. The towers had just crashed, and I shared it with you on the Twitter. Okay, cool. I'll check it out. Howard, thank that? you very much for the call. Thanks for being brief. That was good. I'm impressed. Thank you all so much for being with us today. It's been a fascinating day. I think that you know we need to be careful what lessons we learned from 9-11. And I think the most important lesson is always beware of any politician who tries to turn a disaster into an opportunity for self-aggrandizement, as Donald Trump did in his speech this morning. That was reprehensible. Anyhow, thanks so much for being with us. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.